Father Thomas Esposito is a monk of Our Lady of Dallas Cistercian Abbey in Texas, where he currently serves as sub-prior and junior master. He's an assistant professor of theology at the University of Dallas, where he teaches courses on biblical languages, scriptural interpretation, and world religions. Father Esposito holds an SSD and an SSL from the Pontifical Institute in Rome and is author of Jesus's Meal with Pharisees and Their Liturgical Roots and the Roots That Clutch, Letters on the Origins of Things. Father Thomas, at this time, I would invite you to unmute yourself, turn on your video and take it away. Thank you very much, Michael. It is a pleasure to be with the Lumen Christi Institute this evening for what I hope will be a worthwhile reflection on several topics that are very dear to my heart, namely scripture, St. Paul, and tradition with a capital T, you might say. The title for my talk, How to Be a Corinthian, was suggested by Father Andrew Summerson, an esteemed member of the, the Lumen Christi Institute, who also invited me to give this lecture in the first place. So I'm grateful to him for this opportunity, though I'm told that as a Byzantine right priest, he is doing Holy Week things this evening. I hope that he is doing the incensing and doing it well, rather than be incensed in some unfortunately angry way. Regarding the origin of the ideas that I'd like to share with you tonight, it all goes back to my time in Rome. I was privileged to spend five wonderful years walking the hills, frolicking in the Circus Maximus, and writing a doctorate on the Gospel according to St. Luke. But as I was studying, I was able to go to all of the glorious churches, monuments, tombs of the apostles in the Eternal City, which provided endless amounts of inspiration. One of the most obscure sources of information or of inspiration for me was just a block from the house that I lived in for five years. I lived at the general house of the Cistercian Order, which is on the Aventine Hill. And just one block from the general house was a basilica, the Basilica of, of Santa Sabina. And you might recall that in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 16, he gives a, a shout out to a husband and wife pair, Prisca and Aquila, whom he had met already in Corinth. Luke tells us that story in Acts chapter 18 about Priscilla and Aquila moving from Rome because they had been kicked out by edict of Emperor Claudius. Paul, in writing Romans, gives several shout outs, or shouts out, I forget how you would say that properly, to various people that he knows in anticipation of, of a trip that he wants to make there. And the specific shout out that he gives to Prisca has always stuck with me as a really fascinating insight into the topic that I'm going to try to address tonight. There you have the opening title slide of my uh, presentation. Paul is a little googly eyed in this mosaic, but it comes from Ravenna and it's beautiful. So I figured it would be a nice way to start. The, the slide is this, or the quote is this. Greet Prisca and Aquila, 
my co-workers in Christ who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I am grateful, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church at their house. I remember reading those very words on the terrace of the general house. And I looked up and 200 yards in front of me was the Basilica of Santa Prisca, traditionally the site of the house church where some of the Christians in Rome would gather for their fellowship and the Eucharist. And I thought, well, gosh, that's pretty darn cool. <laughs> the chance to read St. Paul and to visualize the very place that he's thinking of, even though he himself hadn't been there, was just a real treat. And it got me thinking about the specific connection that I have to these early Christian saints, and above all, the apostle to the Gentiles. And that spawned a whole series of, of delightful questions and observations. The curious fact stemming from that initial insight is so simple that it might not register as in any way meaningful, but it's this. St. Paul did not write any letter to me or to you or to anyone living in 2021 AD. In the New Testament, we find a series of letters written by Paul to specific communities and individuals, all of whom are long dead, obviously. So that makes us historical eavesdroppers, as it were, dropping in on a dialogue that we did not have any share in, in some basic way. Dallas, Texas, or Chicago, Illinois, is definitely not on this map of Paul's excellent missionary adventures. So why are we reading these letters? You and I are not Chloe's people, as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 1. We are not Prisca and Aquila. We are not Philemon or Philemon or Philemon Young, however you pronounce that guy's name that Paul writes a letter to. So why are we reading Paul's private correspondence? Even if we acknowledge that Paul intended for many people to read or more likely listen to his letters to the Galatians, the Romans, the Colossians, why are we reading them today? How are we supposed to read them? Are they really just full of stock inspirational phrases for sappy Instagram posts to get you through a rough day? Are they really just raw material for apologetic smackdown discussions you have with your atheist, agnostic, non-denom friends? Unfortunately, that's often how the letters of Paul are treated. But there's way more than just that involved in the mystery that connects us to this apostle and the letters that he wrote. Further questions can come to mind. Who collected and distributed the 13 letters that are attributed to St. Paul in our New Testament today? Was it Paul himself who kept copies of his letters and sent them all somehow to the far-flung regions of the empire that were being evangelized? Was St. Paul himself aware that he was creating sacred scripture when he wrote his letters? And ultimately, why can we correctly assert that Paul wrote 
his letters to us today, even though we are not Romans, Ephesians, Corinthians at any point in world history. Those are practical historical questions initially about the writing and canonizing of Paul's letters. But they naturally spawn theological reflections on the nature of capital T tradition, of the formation of the New Testament canon, and of the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. So tonight, this little lecture of mine is not intended to be a devotional hour of pious reflections about St. Paul's theology. It's not intended either to be a lesson in Lexio Divina, how to prayerfully read scripture. But it will hopefully help you in your devotion and your prayerful pondering of the mysteries contained primarily in the letters of, of St. Paul. There are three basic steps that I would like to uh, run through, run down in the course of these next few minutes. The first is to kind of lay the foundation for what I will call Paul's hermeneutic when reading the scriptures of Israel. If Paul indeed, as we, as we scholars think, is the first Christian author, that means that he's the first Christian theologian, aside from maybe Jesus, but we don't think Jesus himself wrote anything down. That makes Paul the tone setter for every theological idea and every theologian of the Christian persuasion that comes after him. So how did St. Paul read scripture? And what does he have to teach us on that score? A second step would be to muse briefly on the first generations of Christian readers who read the letters of Paul. How did the Romans, the Corinthians, the Ephesians of subsequent generations treat the treasure of the letters that Paul addressed to them? And how did they share them with the rest of the universal church? And lastly, what's in this for us, right? Where do we fit in to this intriguing but very ancient tradition? We who seem so separated by a vast gulf of time and space and even perspectives from St. Paul and his apostolic work. The basic idea that I wanna get across would be summed up perhaps in the phrase tradition at work, tradition unveiled on display through the centuries. If you understand capital T tradition from the Catholic perspective, you're thinking of broadly speaking, the life of the church which would entail liturgical celebrations, fraternal charity, solidarity, the sacraments, church doctrine, the canonizing process of saints in our own day, but more properly speaking with regard to Paul, of books, of creating a list of books that are understood to be inspired and containing the words that God wants us to know for the sake of our salvation. And I'll highlight here in this talk how the collection and dissemination, right, the distribution of Paul's letters, both highlight the desire on the part of those in Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, Rome, to share their historical privilege, ensuring that every Christian, regardless of time and place, truly and really becomes a Corinthian, a Roman, an Ephesian, when they're reading the letters of St. Paul. 
I'll finish this lecture with a few brief examples in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that we can hopefully apply to bettering our understanding of Christ and our relationship with Christ, mediated through the words of the Apostle St. Paul. Let's go to the first step. Paul's reading of scripture requires an initial reminder that during the life of Paul, the New Testament does not exist. When he's breathing murderous threats as Saul of Tarsus against the follower of Jesus, he is only aware of the scriptures belonging to his people, ancient Israel. Saul is a Pharisee by his own account. In the third chapter of his letter to the Philippians, Paul acknowledges that he was a Pharisee. And in a speech in Acts of the Apostles written by St. Luke, Paul asserts that he is a Pharisee as well. That means that he knows his ancestral heritage backwards and forwards, and he treats it with immense zeal, defending it from those that he understands to be traitors, heretics, blasphemers, namely the followers of Jesus. He understands his own tradition, including those scriptures, to be the precious and unique possession of Israel. Israel has a relationship with the Lord that is set apart from all other nations, the covenant on Mount Sinai, the law of Moses, and the inheritance given to the Jews of his day. None of that is available to the Gentiles that Paul is going to come into contact with when he has his massive conversion. After his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, narrated on three separate occasions in Acts of the Apostles, Saul, later Paul, comes to recognize that God has been preparing to extend that same covenant relationship of love to the Gentiles through Christ. And he also comes to acknowledge that God wants him to be one of the chosen missionaries of that message to the entire world. So how does he do it? What's his message? Well, one of Paul's primary evangelization um, moves is to learn how to reread his scriptures, the scriptures of Israel, through the lens of Christ's birth, death, and resurrection. What once belonged exclusively to Israel is now the property of all Christians, Jew and Gentile. And it's thanks in large part, I would say, to St. Paul, inspired by the teachings of Jesus, that the church down the road will preserve those scriptures of ancient Israel and eventually join to them a series of documents written by apostles or people connected to the apostles that will come to be called the New Testament. I think it's fascinating to note that there is no guarantee that the first Christians would embrace the scriptures of Israel, adopt them, take them over, as it were, as Christian scripture. And in fact, you might recall from your, your studies of the early church that there was a movement led by a dude named Marcion, uh, who one professor in Texas refers to as Martian. I think that's one example of why Texas should not impose its dialect on all English speakers. Marcion advocated for a complete removal of the scriptures of Israel, saying that they had been simply superseded and were no longer necessary now that 
the revelation of Christ, his Gnostic understanding of it at least, was available. So I just want to give a couple examples of Paul's hermeneutic in reading some particular passages of what we now call the Old Testament in the light of Christ. And there are plenty of other examples that I could have chosen, but I'll just give you two specific ones. First one comes from the letter to the Romans. In the context of an exhortation to the Romans to persevere in hope, Paul writes, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you fall upon me. That's a quote from Psalm 69.10, one of the um, psalms that we'll hear often during this Holy Week, because it's connected by the early church to the passion of, of Jesus. Basing himself on that psalm, Paul will write, for whatever was written previously was written for our instruction, that by endurance and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul's understanding here that all of scripture is fulfilled in Christ and needs to be read in the light of Christ's resurrection as a specific reference to this single verse from Psalm 69. The readers of his own day need to understand it as having an instruction for them. In a similar vein, the first letter to the Corinthians has a passage from the book of Deuteronomy that Paul will then reflect on. This is 1 Corinthians 9, verses 9 through 11. It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is God concerned about oxen? Or is he not really speaking for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher in hope of receiving a share. If we have sown spiritual seed for you, it is a great thing that we reap a material, is it a great thing that we reap a material harvest from you? I don't have much to do in my day-to-day -day life with oxen, so it's a bit mysterious what the connection I would have to this particular passage would be. And yet, Paul is speaking of this passage as being written for our sake. Now, in the context, Paul is talking about how his missionary efforts demand from the Christians of Corinth, some material compensation. He's giving them the spiritual compensation of life in Christ. And he talks about how he can and, and should impose on the Corinthians, but how he doesn't want to or doesn't want to force it too much. Paul can be passive aggressive on, on occasions in terms of what he wants or expects from his, uh, his fellow Christians. But in terms of applying ancient texts, to new times, new places, new peoples. Paul is not inventing this concept. In fact, it's central to Israel's understanding of itself. All you have to think about is the Passover ritual that believing Jews down to the present day celebrate. And as a little visual for you, I'll give a Seder meal plate. If you read the account of the original Exodus story out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, You'll find some curious usage of first-person plural pronouns, where the author will feature statements such as, when you, later Israelites, who aren't in Egypt, are recounting the story of what God did for your ancestors in ancient Egypt, you need to tell your kids that the Lord delivered us from the hands of Pharaoh. 
and that he spared our houses when the angel of death passed over that first night in Egypt that brought about the deliverance of the Israelites who had been enslaved through the Red Sea. Those references to we, us, our, are meant to bind all generations of Jews together in the same experience of God's liberating power. Even if you weren't there that first night way back in Egypt, you remember that event in your present moment. And by remembering, you put the members, so to speak, of a past event into your present and experience that same exhilarating grace and privilege that your ancestors did back in the day. If that sounds vaguely familiar to the Christian liturgy, you're right, because we Christians take that over part and parcel when Jesus presents the Last Supper. And I'll talk about the Last Supper a little later when discussing 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So Paul is very much aware of the need to bridge present believers with those of the past and to bring the ancient scriptures of Israel into the present in a vivid way, in a living way. Moving on to, to step two of my, my presentation, the particular revelation that God gave to Israel in the scriptures, right, the law, the prophets, the writings, is read through the lens of Christ by St. Paul and the first Christians. It's something that had once belonged to Israel alone, but is now the domain of all Christians. It's been universalized by the preaching of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. In like manner, the particular churches who received a letter from St. Paul during the course of his ministry have a historical honor that is indeed particular to themselves, but who share the gift with the universal church making those letters available to all believers, regardless of, of place and time. And there's a fascinating phenomenon that I'd like to just briefly take you through in these coming slides. In the first, second, and third centuries of the Christian era, there's a series of bishops who write to the Christians in cities that Paul evangelized and wrote letters to. These bishops are aware that these select churches in places like Ephesus and Philippi and Rome, have a letter from St. Paul that they call their own. Well, what's really intriguing is that the bishops equate these later generations of believers with the original recipients of the letters. And there's a mechanism at work here. It's the bridge of tradition that spans decades of believers. So the canonization process, how Paul's letters got into the final form that we have them today in the New Testament, really eliminates barriers of time and place, such that the Philippians, for example, of 150 AD are, in a real sense, the same believers as those that Paul wrote to roughly in the year 50 AD, 100 years earlier. So I want now to give a few examples of these uh, passages from early bishops in the first three centuries. These are like the theological stud muffins that I love. I never get tired of reading any of the fathers of the church, but especially these, these earliest theologians who really set the tone for our understanding of scripture moving forward. I'll start with Clement. 
who by tradition was one of the earliest bishops of Rome. And from Rome, somewhere around the year 95 AD, wrote to the Corinthian community that was plagued by factions. It's actually nothing new as, as Clement will write in his letter. He's aware that Paul wrote a letter to them decrying the factions that were already on display during Paul's own ministry. So Paul had already warned the Corinthians of this back in his letter and something new but old has tragically broken out in the Corinthian church, a rebellion of some sort against a couple of the leaders, maybe the presbyters in, in Corinth, although there's some mystery as to what exactly was, was going on there. The first quote is this from Clement to the Corinthians. We write these things, dear friends, not only to admonish you, but also to remind ourselves. For we are in the same arena and the same contest awaits us. Therefore, let us abandon empty and futile thoughts. And let us conform to the glorious and holy rule of our tradition. Indeed, let us note what is good, what is pleasing, what is acceptable in the sight of the one who made us. What I'd like to ponder in this quote is the passage that I um, put in Greek for those of you who, who read that, that beautiful ancient tongue. The rule of our tradition, the kanona, so that the canon, the, the standard of our tradition is what Clement appeals to in pleading with the Corinthians, essentially to, to shape up. This is one of the earliest references to something of a commonplace in the early Christian theologians. Irenaeus will refer to it as the rule of truth or the rule of faith. Tertullian, Origen, will also speak of a rule of some sort that guides the early Christians in their understanding of what is true, what is orthodox, what is conformable to the will of Christ. Now that rule of our tradition predates scripture. It predates the New Testament. So what was it? Was it a, a creedal formula, a set of beliefs? Was it a confession of faith? Was it something that was done within the liturgical life of the community? We don't really know. At any rate, Clement is using it here as a reference to what should be common between the Romans and the Corinthians of his day. The next passage is a really fascinating one for me. And it's, it's a little on the longer side, but there's some very rich um, spiritual minerals to be mined here. So I wanna share them. This is chapter 47 of First Clement. Take up the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. What did he first write to you in the beginning of the gospel? Truly, he wrote to you in the spirit about himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even then you had split into factions. Yet that splitting into factions brought less sin upon you, for you were partisans of highly reputed apostles and of a man approved by them. In contrast, now, think about those who have perverted you and diminished the respect due your renowned love for others. It is disgraceful, dear friends, yes, utterly disgraceful and unworthy of your conduct in Christ, that it should be reported that the well-established and ancient church of the Corinthians, because of one or two persons, is rebelling against its presbyters. 
Clement packs quite a punch here. It's a remarkable passage uh, for many reasons. I'm not even going to emphasize one of them, which is that this Bishop of Rome seems to consider himself capable of messing with another church's affairs, right? Another particular church, namely Corinth. Clement here in this passage reveals his knowledge that Paul had written at least one letter to the Christian community. How did he know that? How did he get the letter, perhaps originally just addressed to the Corinthians, from his vantage point in Rome? Another aspect of this section of Clement's letter that really fascinates me is that he blends the present situation of the Corinthians with the past. The word you in these lines has, a, has two different reference points. On occasion, it's for the present Corinthians that Clement is writing to. And on occasion, it's the you of the Corinthian church that Paul was writing to a few decades earlier. That's intriguing because Clement had already written in paragraph five of his letter that Paul has died. And yet he asserts here that Paul wrote to you, Clement's own contemporaries, at the end of the first century, some 30 years after Paul's actual death. Also noteworthy is the theological insight that Clement has about the manner in which Paul addresses the Corinthians in 95 AD. His decades-old first letter to the Corinthians is given to the Corinthians of Clement's own day, and the blending of peoples is ensured by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to you in the Spirit. So much for Clement. We got to move on to St. Ignatius of Antioch, who dies around the year 110. He's a famous letter writer on his way to a martyr's death in Rome. He's looking forward to the lions with a glee that um, not all Christians would share as they approach their, their martyr's death. But in writing to the Ephesians on his way to his martyrdom under arrest, he writes the following about St. Paul. I know who I am and to whom I am writing. I am a convict. You have received mercy. I am in danger. You are secure. You are the highway of those who are being killed for God's sake. You are fellow initiates of Paul, who is sanctified, who is approved, who is deservedly blessed. May I be found in his footsteps when I reach God, who in every letter remembers you in Christ Jesus. Ignatius, too, knows that Paul has been dead for at least 50 years. So how can he claim to know the mind of Paul? How can he claim that Paul, in every letter, remembers you, the Ephesians of roughly 110 AD, in Christ Jesus? It's a present tense verb, remembers you. From the grammatical perspective, right, the present tense implies some progressive aspect, an ongoing state. What is Ignatius up to in this linking of the Ephesians of his own day with the Ephesians that Paul wrote to in his letter? I want to make a slight digression here to reference a New Testament work that is not written by Paul, but is rather attributed to St. Peter. Because in the second letter of St. Peter, there's an almost identical phrase to what 
Ignatius writes here in his letter. I want to give you the privilege of reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. As our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, also wrote to you, speaking of these things as he does in all his letters. In them, there are things hard to understand, but the ignorant and unable, unstable distort to their own destruction, just as they do the other scriptures. Now, there's a lot to be said here about Second Peter. Even if, as it seems, that this is a um, pseudonymous work, perhaps not penned by Peter himself, it yet is in the canon of scripture and has the authority of St. Peter behind it. Just some things that I'd like to note. Whereas Ignatius spoke of in every letter of St. Paul's, the author of 2 Peter has the plural in all his letters, which means that some collection of Paul's letters is already circulating by the time that 2 Peter writes his little book. When did he write it? We don't know. Some people speculate that it's roughly around the year 100 AD, perhaps at the very end of, of the first century. But the bottom line is that a collection of Paul's letters is already circulating. We just don't know who put it together. It could have been Paul. It could have been Timothy or Titus, one of his disciples. We just don't know. But what's curious here is that Paul's letters are being treated as on an equal footing with the other scriptures. Now, does that mean the Gospels? Does that mean the Law, Prophets, and Writings of ancient Israel? We don't know. But scriptures is a pretty strong word. And it could very well be that Paul's letters were already treated as having some sense of inspiration behind them, of being the Word of God. And there's also the cool uh, issue of Peter's own authority being invoked to, as it were, close the canon of, of Paul's letters, saying that there are people who distort them, because indeed Paul can be a kind of tough theologian, but I, writing my letter here, are, am aware of the right way of interpreting those letters of St. Paul. So that's a worthwhile digression just to highlight how close some of the writings of the New Testament are to these early Christian authors like Ignatius and Clement. They might even be overlapping on the New Testament timeline. To Polycarp we go. Polycarp dies around the year 150, and we don't know when exactly he wrote his letter to the Philippians. Polycarp being the Bishop of Smyrna, fantastic name, was himself the recipient of a letter from St. Ignatius back in the day. But in his letter to the Philippians, Polycarp too is aware of this present tenseness of Paul's letter that the Philippians have in their possession. And he writes in chapter 11, or do we not know that the saints will judge the world as Paul teaches? But I have not observed or heard of any such thing among you in whose midst the blessed Paul labored and who are praised in the beginning of his letter. For he boasts about you in all the churches, the ones that at that time had come to know the Lord. For we had not yet come to know him. What I really love about this quote from Polycarp is that 
he's aware of a historical distinction. He knows that the Philippians were early recipients of the gospel message, whereas his fellow Smyrnians evidently were not. They're a little late to the game, so to speak. And yet, Paul is boasting, present tense, to the Philippians of Polycarp's own day, not just the Philippians that he wrote to. Once again, you have the boldness of an early bishop, in this case Polycarp, claiming to know the mind of Paul, knowing that Paul boasts about the faithful Philippians in all the churches. To get to a, a non-bishop for, for just a second, one a little different than the others that we're, we're talking about here, a Latin author named Tertullian, who was living in Carthage, but was not a bishop, and who, how to put it, went a little wonky near the end of his life. And so he's not hailed as a, a saint in certainly the, the Roman Catholic tradition. I, I'm not sure in, in any other uh, Christian tradition. Regardless of that, Tertullian did have some orthodox writings that were just dynamite. One in particular is his uh, takedown of the Marcionite heresy, written somewhere around the year, the year 200. Now, in this particular case, Tertullian is not writing to a particular community, as the other bishops that I'm talking about were. The same concept, though, is at work. Let us see what milk the Corinthians drank from Paul. To what rule the Galatians were brought for correction. There's the word rule again. What the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Ephesians read by it. What utterance also the Romans give so very near to the apostles, to whom Peter and Paul conjointly bequeath the gospel, even sealed with their own blood. So Tertullian runs down a list of particular churches that received letters from St. Paul. And he speaks of a couple of them in the past tense, right? the Corinthians, the Galatians. But then he switches over to the, the present tense. It's a present subjunctive in his, in his Latin. But there's this progressive sense that Paul's letters are continually speaking, present tensely, well after he himself had passed away. One final um, early bishop from the church, again, a Latin author, this time in the third century, Cyprian of Carthage, who was a bishop, writing to Cornelius, the Bishop of Rome, somewhere around the year 251 AD, during a rather fierce persecution by the Emperor Valerian. There's several exchanges of, of letters between uh, the clergy of Rome and Cornelius and Cyprian. And this is one of my favorite quotes from the patristic age because it just sums up the whole band of brothers and sisters idea in the Christian faith. And hopefully you'll, you'll see that, that same wonderful insight that Cyprian shares. Brightly has there shown forth, dearly beloved brother, that faith which the blessed apostle so extolled in you. And there's an allusion there to Romans chapter one, verse eight. Even in those days, he could foresee through the spirit, this glorious valor we can see today, this resolute strength, by his heralding of the future, he was in fact testifying to your meritorious achievements. By his praising the fathers, he was in fact spurring on the sons. Through your present display of unanimity and fortitude, you have set up a splendid model for the rest of the brethren to follow. 
I think that's a wonderful quote, highlighting the fact that we're all in this together, regardless of time or place, and that the early Christians that Paul is exhorting are exhorting us so many centuries later. You have similar sentiments to the ones that I just shared in other early patristic authors. Uh, Dionysius, Bishop of Corinth, has some cool shouts out to uh, the church in Rome. In some of the Acts of the Martyrs, you have references to, to civic pride, you might say, in the fact that, for example, the Thessalonian women, Agape, Irene, and Chione, around the year 300, live up to the high reputation that Paul had of the Thessalonians in his two letters to that church back in the first century AD. At this point, you might be thinking, good for those apostolic cities, right? Indeed, their historical privilege is unique. We residents of Dallas and Chicago have no claim to that original coolness and boast of these churches. So why are we still reading them today? Well, the previous uh, section that I highlighted reveals the organic process of tradition at work that ensures continuity among generations of believers, right? I talked about the use of, of we and you, or in Texas, we would say y'all, in letters. And it's a continuity that reveals a really strong awareness that Paul is always speaking in the present tense to believers in those apostolic cities well after his death. We can expand on this, and we have to, because we don't live in Rome or Corinth. Thanks to the revelation of God's will communicated to us through Christ himself and then through his apostles, we can say that God always speaks to us in the present tense. And this is a simple fact of, of the Catholic uh, self-understanding. If you just think of how the sacraments work, there's the present tense absolution of sins in confession, right? I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Most beautifully in the Eucharist, the priest stands in persona Christi and says, take this all of you and eat. This is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. We're not simply doing some nostalgia trip, remembering what Jesus did back in the day. No, we are remembering, bringing the members of Jesus into our present day here and now so that he can speak to us in the Eucharist, but all the more so, he can speak to us in the scriptures, a living word. And that living word comes to us by a process in which individual letters of human beings, like Paul, become part of a collected body of work that we now call scripture. To highlight that fact, I just want to give one example from the New Testament itself, again, on the subject of letters. I have a map here. Oops. Oh. Hopefully you didn't see that really dope picture of St. Paul that I want to end on. I give you a map of the seven churches that receive a little letter within the book of Revelation. In chapters two and three of Revelation, John writes to specific churches that you see listed there, clustered in maybe a hundred mile radius in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And he himself is writing from the Isle of of Patmos. There's a beautiful reflection 
in the concluding part of each of those mini letters. That is actually an echo of something that Jesus says frequently in the Gospels. John writes, whoever has ears ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in reflecting on the letters that John writes within the book of Revelation, a theologian named Victorinus of Petau, who dies around the year 300, has the insight that John is not just writing to Pergamum or Sardis or Philadelphia exclusively. What John writes to one church, he writes to them all. And I think that's a, a very valid way and correct way of understanding the letters of St. Paul in the New Testament. The letters here in the book of Revelation are unique, right? It's a different genre because it's part of an apocalypse, but the same concept is at work with the letters. So the blessing bestowed on the churches at Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and Rome are indeed unique, historically speaking, because revelation itself has to be historically rooted, right? The incarnation happens at a precise moment in human history. And so those cities are privileged but they share that blessing with all other Christians in all other parts of the world, thanks to this traditioning instinct of the early church, which makes every Christian effectively a Corinthian, a Philippian, an Ephesian, when they read Paul's letters. There's always a time-bound, a historical-bound character to Paul's letters. You just have to read the, the salutes that he gives at the end of his letters, people from those early communities. And yet, the transmission of those letters in our New Testament showcases the apostolic foundation on which those particular churches were built and then incorporated into the structure of the universal church. As a way of concluding this little stroll through the first couple centuries of uh, Christian interpretation of Paul's letters, I think it's providential that the letter was the dominant literary genre in the apostolic church. Aside from the gospels and acts and revelation, just about all of the New Testament is composed of letters. So there's a sense of dialogue, a personal appeal, a, an encounter of persons both living and dead that is at work in these letters. Now with regard to specific um, parts of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. There is much indeed that is relegated to the historical past. Right? For example, the question about eating meat that has been sacrificed to pagan idols was a pressing issue for the Corinthians of Paul's day that isn't so much on our minds today. It's not a, a burning or very relevant issue. And yet, in thinking of that experience of the first Christians in Corinth. We can perhaps apply those thoughts that Paul gives to them regarding our fruitful interaction with the pagan world around us. There is also, of course, plenty of material that informs our present and indeed makes for, for, for catchy, slick Instagram posts of inspiration. More profoundly though, there are reflections and counsel on how to overcome actions. This is the letter in which Paul really develops his idea of the body of Christ and all the members of the body have their specific role 
the head, the toes, the fingers, but they are all one in, in Christ Jesus. There's that beautiful reference in chapter one to the, the logos of the cross, so that the logic of the cross that is foolishness to the world, but Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who believe. It's in 1 Corinthians 13 that you have that beautiful hymn to love, agape. And you have there one of the first formulations of the triad, faith, hope, and love, which come to be the theological virtues. Paul seems to have invented faith, hope, and love, by the way, as the great virtues governing the Christian life. But what I'd like to focus on lastly in winding this down is one particular passage in 1 Corinthians that highlights the fact that you and me, you and I, excuse me, proper grammar, are Corinthians at every single Eucharist. I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. The setting for this is a Paul's uh, lambasting of the Corinthians for their factiousness in separating when they come together to receive the uh, Eucharist. He's not praising them. In fact, there might have been elements of drunkenness or um, social <laughs> distancing, meaning rich and poor who weren't together for the, the common Eucharist. And as an answer to that, Paul gives the earliest witness we have to words of Jesus that are gonna be quite similar to Luke's version of Jesus's words at the Last Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was handed over took bread and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in memory of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, present tense, the death of the Lord until he comes. There's so many things that I, I love about this, this passage. One is that Paul is giving us the words of Jesus. And if it is indeed the earliest uh, version of uh, Jesus's last supper that we have, it's a really precious testimony. Paul also explicitly uses the phrase handed on, handed over. It's the same verb. And it's the verb from which we get the word tradition, which literally means to hand on. Right? In this case, it's not simply the words of Jesus, but the meal itself that Paul is handing on to the Corinthians. What he's doing here, as I understand it, is very much like what the Israelites did at the Passover meal. He's gathering all times and believers together in one now moment. Right? The past is the remembrance of not just the Passover, but it's going to be the reference point to Christ's death on the cross, his sacrificial death on the cross. That comes into our present every time we remember what the Lord has done, every time we celebrate the Eucharist. But there's also a future component here, because Paul himself will note 
basing himself on Jesus's words, do this as often as you drink it in memory of me, that we are to do this down the road for all times. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. And obviously that should sound familiar to you because that is one of the responses, the mystery of faith that we offer at every mass, meaning that all time, all believers are in some very real and beautiful way present in that moment together with us when we celebrate the Eucharist. And so my good Corinthians, read Paul's letters, celebrate the Eucharist in the context of reading Paul's letters because they're all addressed to you. Thank you very much. Well, Father Thomas, thank you very much for this walk into the early days of Christianity and, and helping us remember um, that we are not only um, Corinthians as well, um, but that we're connected with Christians throughout um, the centuries. And I guess with that, that would I, I'd love if you could just unpack for us again and, and um, going off of a question that Marilyn um, Bousset asks here. She says the Jewish understanding is that we were present in the loins of our ancestors at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Um, and it seems like you have given us multiple ways in which um, we are present hearers of Paul's letters um, with God speaking to us um, through the Eucharist, um, through being part of the church. So I was wondering if you could just sort of unpack perhaps the, the multiple ways um, that, that we're present hearers and, and whether you would find Christianity having something similar um, to this Jewish tradition of being present in the loins of our ancestors? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful question, Marilyn. Um, there is a basic difference, I think, in the Jewish and Christian understandings uh, reflected in that um, idea that the Jews were present in the loins of their ancestors. And that is the fact that uh, Judaism has always understood itself to be an, an ethnic identity as well. And so there would be a, um, a difference on the Christian perspective in that we are not from the same you know, biological family right? because we are Jews, we are Gentiles, et cetera. And so there would be that you know, distinction that would need to be made. But in terms of um, you know, the, the symbolism of being present on Mount Sinai, I think one of the gifts of scripture itself is that it brings Mount Sinai to you in some, in some basic sense. It brings the law into your, your present moment while also giving you an awareness of the, the timeline that you yourself are a part of. Um, so that would be, I guess, uh, an initial answer that I, that I would give to that question. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, another question um, from Rudolf Gartner. He says, you mentioned that for the Apostle Paul, there really was not a New Testament, at least not yet. The Gospels had not yet been formed and written. Paul knew the ancient scriptures of the Israelites. My question is, apart from Paul's divine inspiration and conversion to Christ, what practical empirical knowledge did Paul have of Jesus? What access did he have to Jesus of what Jesus spoke to his immediate apostles and disciples 
into the various crowds at large? What was the foundation of Paul's knowledge of Jesus? So, um, so teach and inspire uh, others of Christ's message and mission. Um, and you, you, be, you alluded to this, you, you, you already answered this a bit with, with this handing on um, within Corinthians of the handing on of the Eucharistic um, formula. Uh, but I'd be curious if, you know, following up on his question, whether there are other instances where we can already see scriptural formulas or hymns already within Paul's writings, or if we have other evidence of Paul receiving traditions from the apostles. Yeah, it's a wonderful question. Um, and a very relevant one today because many scholars and perhaps lay people think that since Paul was not an original apostle, he couldn't know Jesus in any fundamental way. And so you'll have a, a critique of, of Paul in that sense as even creating the Christian message apart from those who did have eyewitness experience of him. I don't think that's valid though. And one of the uh, reasons I don't think that's valid is precisely because he does quote that um, Last Supper passage in 1 Corinthians 11. We're here on the speculative level of how the apostles interacted with each other in the, the early church. Paul is very clear at the beginning of Galatians that um, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. And at a certain point in his um, Christian formation, he seeks out Peter, whom he usually refers to as Kephas. He hangs out with him for, for two weeks in Jerusalem. He meets up with Kephas, James, and John, the pillars of the church. I understand those meetings to be a matter of Paul going over what he has of the Christian message, you know, getting the fact check from Peter and James and John, but also hearing from them, their own eyewitness experience of, of Jesus's ministry. And so it is true that Paul doesn't quote Jesus very often in his letters, and he gives virtually no um, you know, biographical details or stories about Jesus's own ministry. One reason for that might simply be the genre. He's writing about urgent theological matters in the churches that he's, he's founded or, or wants to, to visit. So it might not have you know, entered into his, his view. But another one would be um, to recall that Paul's familiarity with the apostles and those who did see Jesus and interact with him um, would have to be considered valuable. And you do have hints of um, formulas that the other apostles themselves use. Um, so the understanding of, of Jesus as the son with God as the father um, is, is an essential one. And the idea of God exalting Jesus with that, that hymn as it's usually described in Philippians two would be good examples of Paul taking material from other people and incorporating them into his letter, highlighting that he is receiving from others who are um, you know, more, or were more present physically during Jesus's ministry. The last one, and I'll, I'll stop with this, would be uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where again, he, speak, he uses this, this verb to pass on, uh, describing the witnesses to Jesus's resurrection. And then he, he launches into 
the theological import of that historical event that others have testified to. Wonderful, wonderful, thank you. Um, we have a great question from Catherine Wallace. Um, do you have any thoughts on why the letter genre becomes so popular in the New Testament, um, but we don't see it as a part of the Hebrew Bible? Gosh, that's a great question. There is a letter or two in the, the Old Testament. So, so mm. Jeremiah writes to the exiles in Babylon. Um, Jeremiah 28, I think it is. Um, so there, there are scattered, scattered examples for sure. But I think the, um, the Old Testament would have adopted other uh, genres simply because the Israelites were closer to each other when they were in, in the land, in, in Jerusalem specifically. Um, but also there is, um, <laughs> there are more pressing genres, I guess. The law has to be laid down, it has to be delivered in the form of, of a covenant. And so you wouldn't present that in, in a letter form. The prophets um, aren't as nice as Paul is and Paul himself isn't nice on occasion. They, they need to denounce <laughs> with prophetic oracles what the people are doing wrong. And so my sense might, might be that um, the needs of the time in which the Israelites were living called for different kinds of, of genres. Also, the letter in some way reflects the missionary nature of, of the church because as an effective way of, of communicating Paul needed to have a network of his disciples who were presumably exchanging exchanging letters. And so the delivery system would, would get involved in that. Um, could you speak about the uh, continued importance again of, of this epistolatory genre? Um, you already mentioned it with, with uh, you know, lifting out Clement himself, but um, do we see other emulations of Paul? Um, echoed through the church fathers? Oh gosh, yeah. Well, I, I didn't even mention the, the possibility that Ignatius, at least, is perhaps consciously imitating Paul. Hmm. We have seven letters of, of St. Ignatius, um, although he might also perhaps be imitating just a custom in, in the early church. We don't know, because there's seven letters in the book of Revelation. Um, and curiously enough, there, there's seven undisputed letters of, of St. Paul in the New Testament canon, but that's, that's a, a later thing. In terms of the emulation of, of Paul, um, I think there, there's enough emulation in the simple fact that he is considered you know, the theologian from whom all future theologians draw. You know, Augustine's doctrine on, on justification would be, would be an obvious example of that. Um, the, the teachings of um, baptism, the theological significance of Christian baptism are plucked out of Romans 5 and 6. And you, know, you run the risk there, obviously, of reducing Paul to just the, the apologetics warehouse or the doctrinal um, store. But it's just a sign of the esteem that he was held in the, the early church. He was the go-to. And I think maybe it's N.T. Wright who has said that basically every theological dispute after Paul is in some sense just 
a battle over Paul and how to interpret him. There's a certain truth to that. Um, so following up on this interpreting Paul uh, motif that you just um, raised for us, Elizabeth Kincaid, uh, I believe a mutual friend of ours, uh, um, mm -hmm. writes, when you referenced food offered to idols, you pointed that this is a passage that is not directly relevant as written um, to contemporary Christians because these issues aren't directly raised in our lives, although they still have relevance in a perhaps more indirect way. What are some other hermeneutical tips you might have about how we should read Paul's other ethical statements to Christians? How do we determine if they're directly applicable to our lives or perhaps should be read in a less directly, directly applicable way? Gosh, ethical statements, yeah. In some sense, you just have to, to follow the, the tradition of the church in the way that those, those actions or questions were, were resolved. So with the, the meat offered to idols, once there are no more idols to be offered, <laughs> me too, the, the issue is, is kind of moot. Um, but I think there's you know, the, the perennial uh, you know, natural law stuff that would, that would go in pretty naturally. Um, but I would also say that it's the, the pattern of church life that you would just have to, to appeal to regarding um, how to specifically analyze a, a particular um, ethical statement that, that Paul would make. A lot of the uh, statements that I'll make will pertain to, to actions, um, what the believers in Corinth are supposed to do. Um, actions are not you know, dogmatic assertions, and so you would have to be aware of, of distinctions on, on that level. But ultimately, um, and I'm sure Elizabeth is going to ask me questions about this when we when we chat next, um, which will give me more time to formulate an answer. <laughs> but ultimately, I, I think you, you have to trust the 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 tradition of the church and the reflection of the centuries in kind of moving to the side what is not directly applicable, as opposed to what remains perennial. Um, you mentioned just their church life. Um, this week, of course, marks the end of Lent. Um, and for many Christians, the end of the spiritual practices that they've participated in throughout Lent that they've taken on. But we're entering a new liturgical season, the, the season of Easter. And so I was wondering if you could just give some advice um, around how Christians, around how um, Catholics and, and, and our, our Christian brothers and sisters joining us on this webinar might read Paul in a spiritual way, might engage either through Lexio or other practices throughout the Easter season, um, and, and, and whether you might give them insights as to how they could um, deepen their prayer life and their scriptural life um, in the weeks between now and Pentecost. Sure, sure. So Lexio Divina would be the, the tried and true monastic method of, of prayer, one of them at least. And I think in the case of Paul, I've always found fruitful uh, just pondering the perspective of a first century Christian with these mysteries so recent, so immediate. There's a freshness to um, these passages. And in fact, I, 
I recall a, a phrase in a book by Henri de Lubac, his book of First Thessalonians, which might be the very first letter that Paul wrote, at least one that we have, as the Christmas of Christian literature. It's, it's, so, it's so new, it's so fresh, it's so exciting. And perhaps putting yourself, stylizing yourself as a, an original recipient of Paul's letter, letters could be a real fruitful practice. Um, I, would, I would go to the, the passages where he speaks of new life in Christ. And so Romans five through eight, um, Galatians three, First uh, Corinthians 15, for sure, with the reflection on, on the resurrection. And I think it, it's fruitful simply to do the slow regurgitating read. Don't read fast. Don't read for the purpose of saying that you finished in five minutes or, or two days, whatever it might be. Um, something will, will jump out. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, a word that had never caught your eye before. Maybe it's an insight that um, gives you a new appreciation for the mystery that Paul is unfolding for you. Um, but I think those, those passages dealing with, with new life in Christ, or even um, you know, Paul's reflection on his own impending death, strangely enough, could be intriguing in the, the Easter season. Um, right, 2 Timothy 4, where you have I've competed well, I've run the race, I've kept the faith. For now, what awaits me is the reward in, in Christ Jesus. Um, those are just initial things that come to mind. Wonderful. And one final question um, before we bring this program to a close. Um, what do you recommend as a sort of text for our listeners here um, to go further um, with this, uh, with these readings of Paul? Are there introductory texts that you recommend, particular um, commentaries uh, that you recommend? I'm going to give a nod to my uh, Cistercian confrere, Father Dennis Farkasfalvi, who, who just passed away last year. He has a, a wonderful, uh, he has two wonderful books on the questions of um, revelation, inspiration of the Bible and, and canon. So one is called a um, an introduction to the Christian Bible. Uh, the other one is inspiration and interpretation. Uh, they're both from Catholic U Press. And he really does a wonderful job of, of underscoring how revelation is not just a one-time deal to certain people in zero AD, but is rather a process that involves us. Um, so Father Dennis would definitely be, be a go-to there. Just read the, the Fathers of the Church. So there is a, a uh, there, there's several books that have um, anthologies or the complete letters of Ignatius. Um, one of them would be um, the Apostolic Fathers. There's a guy named Michael Holmes who, who edited a, a version of that. Early Christian Fathers is kind of the classic one from the, the 80s, I think it's still Still a great text. Anytime I can send people to the, the first theologians after Paul, that's a win because they're, they're so amazingly rich and they make you realize just how precious our Catholic heritage is. Right? They hand on to us what Paul handed on to them. And 
So that continuity is just a real beautiful uh, gift to ponder. On behalf of our whole audience, Father Thomas, uh, thank you for a very rich discussion today and a blessed Holy Week to you and to all of our viewers. Thank you very much, Michael. Take care, everybody. God bless.